Welcome. This is the second episode of Translating COVID-19, a new series of video conversations exploring the significance of translation at the time of the coronavirus pandemic. My name is Marta Arnaldi and I am a LAMI Research Fellow at the Queen's College, University of Oxford. I am the principal investigator of Translating Illness, which is the project that has inspired me this series. And if you would like to hear more about this project, uh, you can visit the Queen's College Oxford website and click on the Research Translating Illness. Today, I am honoured to join in conversation Charles Fosdick, Professor James Barrow, Professor of French at the University of Liverpool. Charles is not only a world-leading academic, he is also a caring and inspirational mentor to his students and colleagues, including myself. Charles has published widely on topics as varied as travel writing, post-colonial literature, colonial history, comics, penal culture, and the afterlives of slavery. Since 2012, and this is perhaps the part of Charles's career that will inform today's discussion more directly, so since 2012, Charles has been the AHRC Theme Leadership Fellow for Translating Cultures a monumental research project funded by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council. Since his appointment now eight years ago, Charles has overseen a portfolio of around 100 projects across the world, all of which engage with concepts of multiculturalism, multilingualism, tolerance and identity. Charles is a renowned expert in the field of translation studies and I am indeed thrilled to have him as a special guest of this series. Charles, I would like to start with a question related to your own work on and experience of translating cultures. Could you give us a sense of what the translating cultures research theme is and what it has to do with issues of health and well-being? Thank you, Marta. Um, First of all, warmest congratulations on the Translating COVID-19 project, which I think is an extremely timely um, initiative. And thank you also for giving me this opportunity uh, to talk about the resonance of translating cultures as a theme um, with your own work and your own interests. Just a bit of background on translating cultures. It was one of four strategic themes launched, as you said, by the Arts and Humanities Research Council back in 2012. What's important about translating cultures is that it developed organically. So it wasn't commissioned work. Um, the, the projects that emerged were a community response to calls that we put out. And what fascinates me is that those 100 or so projects you've already mentioned that formed our portfolio provide a real snapshot of work in the area of translation and interpreting and multilingualism that's emerged over the past um, decade or so. Of those hundred or so projects, I think it's quite striking that about a third of them were research networks. And that provides a real indication for me of the extent to which, and you're seeing this I know in your own work, that there's a commitment to collaborating, to building capacity around questions of translation, interpreting um, multilingualism. Now, translating cultures led 
in particular to three um, large grants. I'll talk about a couple of them uh, in a moment. They were grants of about £2 million each. At the time, they were unprecedented um, in their scope and scale. They were the largest ones that the HRC um, had ever. Something else in this leads back to your question that was really important for translating cultures was the way in which the theme was a major input to the UKRI Global Challenges um, Research Fund. So the fund, about one and a half billion pounds, supporting UK researchers to form partnerships with other researchers and with um, NGOs and organisations in the global south. And what was exciting about that engagement with the, the GCRF was it allowed us to show the role of language and translation in the formation of intercultural knowledge in a whole range of different um, partnerships with, as I've said, um, researchers in, in the global south. A particularly striking example we had, which I think again is, is relevant to your question, is the pioneering work done by Hilary Footit, um, led from the University of Reading on listening zones of NGOs. Mm-hmm. Now, Translating cultures was about a very broad concept of translation. It wasn't just about um, interlingual transfer. We focused on issues that that are really important to the questions that interest you, so globalization, um, transnational connections. We also, though, and again, this um, is part of my my response to you, we focused on um, domestic issues. We looked at the way in which the United Kingdom itself is a multilingual society with world languages, minoritized languages, community languages, with a really complex linguistic ecology, which brings with it all sorts of translation um, and interpreting needs. Um, One other thing I'd say, and I think, again, as we look at the ways in which humanities and social science scholars respond to the current um, pandemic, we were really keen on avoiding presentism. So a lot of our work was um, looking at the need to historicize questions of translation, questions of interpreting, questions of language. And the key ideas that emerged were, well, we need to challenge any sense that monolingualism is an unmarked case in our research, in our policies, in our everyday life. We need to recognize, and again, this is central to responses to the current health Um, crisis, recognize the ways in which being human involves fundamentally negotiating linguistic diversity. That obviously leads to to a key point, and I think one will probably come back to, and that's that one of our jobs as scholars, researchers, teachers active in the area of language and translation is we need at every possible turn to challenge linguistic indifference and to encourage sensitivity um, to language. And part of that as well is something I know you're interested in, and that's understanding um, the specific meanings of translation, even when translation is deployed um, metaphorically. And and a very striking example of that is obviously thinking about translational medicine. What does that term, translational, tell us about the journey of knowledge from bench um, to, to bedside? And the final um, aspect that really emerged very strongly from translating cultures was um, the way in which we need to explore the relationship between translating and culture and to understand the close independent interdependency um, of those terms. Now, in terms of the second part of your question, and that's 
what do we see in translating cultures um, in relation to the medical humanities, in relation to medicine and, and translation? Well, I don't want to be disappointing, but there was less activity than, than I anticipated. I think that's in part because some of that work that would interest you very much um, went to our sister theme, Science in Culture, um, with whom we worked quite closely. That said, though, Concerns around health and well-being were central to a number of our core projects. So one of the, the three large grants, researching multilingually at the borders of language, the body and the state. Well, a key part of that was the work of, of Ross White, previously in Glasgow. He's now a colleague of mine um, in Liverpool, um, looking at questions of global mental health considering the ways in which Western medical knowledge is translated to context in the global self. And the importance of factoring in to that translation process, indigenous knowledge as an alternative. Another one of our large um, grants, you might know it because it was focused very much on, on Italian culture, transnationalizing modern languages. Um, they had a large project in Namibia. It was under the aegis of the Global Challenge Research Fund, looking at the role of multilingualism and in particular the use of, of local languages um, in, in health education. And just to give you a third example, um, not so much in the area of medical humanities, but in the area of disability studies, um, Jemina Napier at Heriot Watt led a fantastic project called Translating the Deaf Self which looked at the way in which um, hearing impaired people, deaf people, um, live literally in translation as they rely on interpretation for communication. And, and just one final um, issue I'd mention, um, translating cultures also engaged with a constellation of other awards. And it's a number of those other awards which are probably of interest to you and the work you're doing. Um, one particularly comes to mind. It's uh, It was based in Lancaster and it was called Translating Chronic Pain. And it was an incredible research network that brought together people living with chronic pain, uh, representatives of pain charities, medical practitioners, uh, creative writers, um, to think about the ways in which chronic pain um, can be can be turned into um, what those involved in that project called um, flash illness writing, short, fragmentary, episodic pieces of writing which capture um, that, that particular experience. Thank you so much, Charles, for this very rich overview, uh, which is uh, really which highlights a series of very impressive projects all around the UK and uh, abroad. And now, my second question would like to explore a bit more uh, this uh, uh, metaphorical uh, sense of translation and uh, reflect uh, uh, on the current situation as well by linking uh, this reflection to our present. So in, our, in one of your latest blog posts, you suggest, and I quote, that to translate and to reflect on translation in our current context of confinement is to sense in often unexpected ways the expansiveness and interconnectedness with which the practice is inevitably associated. I was wondering whether you would uh, like to comment on this sentence, perhaps by helping us see which aspects or outcomes of translating cultures can be applied to the current health crisis, what we can learn from these practices of cultural translation. Yes, it's a, it, it's a big question. And, and as I said, um, I'm really very grateful for the invitation to, 
to reflect on this because I think the learning from translating cultures really is very relevant to the current challenges um, that, that we are facing. Translating Cultures, as you said, was launched in 2012. Um, it dealt with many geopolitical shifts that we hadn't anticipated. It dealt with um, the decision of the United Kingdom to leave the, uh, the uh, European Union. Um, we had a lot of collaborations with colleagues in the United States. And so um, during the, the lifetime of the theme, um, we saw the impact of the election of the, the 45th president of the United States. We saw the the rise of popular nationalism in Europe and beyond. We saw the 2015 uh, refugee crisis or the, the crisis of hospitality um, in Europe. But so although we didn't anticipate COVID-19, it's clear that our findings and the way in which we handled other major um, challenges um, can, can be factored in. The first point I'd make, and, and it's one we've mentioned already, is the need for um, responses to challenges of this magnitude to be um, linguistically sensitive. And that, that was a key message coming out of, of translating cultures. I think what we've seen over the past um, three or four months is an initial emphasis on STEM research, understandably, in terms of the, the crisis we're in, a focus on some of the areas that, that you're familiar with, um, etiology, um, uh, epidemiology, uh, the development of, of vaccines. What excites me, though, is that we're now increasingly seeing this need for scholars in the arts, humanities and social sciences to be part of a much more um, consolidated effort. People now are talking, I don't know if you've seen this, about shape. So social sciences, humanities and arts for people and the economy or people um, and the environment. So this sense that for us to handle the current pandemic, and for us to imagine possible futures beyond the pandemic, um, the arts and humanities are absolutely crucial. And I would say that um, a major part of that is to do with reflecting on the linguistic and it's to do with reflecting on the cultural and it's to do with thinking about, about translation. Um, so I, I think that the responses that we're seeing now and the responses that will emerge as this um, virus is is slowly brought under control, need to be rooted in an understanding of language. They need to be rooted in understandings of, of intercultural difference as we seek to grapple with how this virus has had an impact within cultures and um, across cultures, often revealing um, great inequality. So that's the first thing I'd say, that, that emphasis on, on linguistic sensitivity. The second aspect you've alluded to already, and that's having a clear understanding of what it means to evoke translation um, metaphorically. That need to, to unpack ways of talking about the virus um, in terms of the, the translation um, of, of disease. And there's a lot of work to be done on that. And I know that's central to, um, to your own current um, interests. But I go from that focus on the metaphorical back to the practical. And this is one of the things we did in Translating Cultures. There was this constant balance between um, practical understandings of translation and metaf uh, more metaphorical understandings. I think what we've seen over the past few weeks is that there's a growing sense of the need to ensure that those at risk of this virus need absolutely to have access to information in their own language. And that awareness is a real challenge to assumptions about the monolingual nature of public 
information, the monolingual nature of science education. Um, science education, which needs to be seen as translational, both metaphorically, but also in this sense, um, quite literally. There is a need for um, public information to be disseminated in a wide range of community languages, not just in majority languages. And I'd add something here. Um, I think that translation can also be seen as a way of engaging the public through other media. And I've always been interested in the work of the, the graphic medicine movement, um, who've, who've shown us that um, we can use other forms, pictorial forms, um, to translate uh, scientific um, knowledge. And um, I suppose the final point I'd make there about um, this sort of ethical and social value of translation, we've seen this, and this is where historicization, even recent historicization is important. We've seen this in, in, in previous um, uh, health crises, not least the 2009 um, swine flu um, pandemic, um, when there was an acknowledgement that knowledge about health circulates beyond um, English. It circulates in other languages, and we really need to make sure that information in other languages is made available um, in, in, in translation. The final point I'd make, um, and to a certain extent it's, it's, it's one you've alluded to already, and again we're seeing this um, quite firmly at the moment, and that's the need in terms of addressing this current pandemic for transnational and comparative knowledge. Now, a lot of the concerns relating to epidemiology, relating more generally to public health, have underlined precisely the importance of comparative approaches. That need to, to grasp um, how the virus um, has taken root, how it's spread, how it's been controlled crucially elsewhere. And the only way we can have that knowledge, global knowledge, is through detailed um, cultural understanding which comes through linguistic knowledge and I, I was uh, when you asked that question I, I thought of the in translation studies of that concept of, of, of trans editing and that, that need to understand the ways in which we can maximize the flow of information and understand how that information is being filtered um, as, as it reaches us so I think um, the learning from translating cultures um, in relation to to the current situation in which we find ourselves is extremely broad Thank you very much, Charles, for elucidating all these uh, areas uh, of uh, uh, exploration and concern at the same time. And uh, uh, I will, my next question, in a sense, moves from these uh, public collective scenario to a more private one and enters into the reality or, around home uh, houses and lives at the moment. Yes, yes. So coronavirus disease is one that undermines not only our immune system, but also our common understanding of words such as isolation and community. We are the COVID-19 generation, the most connected and yet perhaps the loneliest of all. Mental Health Foundation has reported that according to a survey of UK adults which took place during lockdown at the beginning of April, one in four people said that they had feelings of loneliness. When the same question was asked shortly before lockdown, just one in ten people said that they had these feelings. So in a matter of weeks, social distances, social distancing in this age of confinement. 
Right. The, 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 this for me is a, a key question because it allows us to think about the um, interdisciplinary response to, to the virus and the way in which the sort of work that was represented by translating cultures has a complementary and indeed supplementary um, role to play in, in the response to the virus. As you've said, um, the current emphasis is understandably on, on, on medical control of the virus. The sorts of questions we're already asking in the arts, humanities and social sciences to do with these other legacies. Um, legacies around, as you've said, mental health and well-being, legacies around um, a sense of community, legacies around what it means for a significant number of people across the world not to have been allowed to, to mourn their dead in the ways that they would usually expect to. This is a major impact um, which goes beyond the immediate health-related and, um, and, and physical. Um, the answer I'd like to give you really in, in terms of illustrating how thinking on this is emerging relates to um, precisely that sense of isolation um, and that, that, that sense of confinement um, and the way in which literature and culture have clearly played a major role in this age of confinement, particularly for our purposes, literature and culture in translation, which have continued to give people access to um, the world in, in its diversity. I think what's become increasingly clear over the past few weeks is that literature, cinema, um, access to, to museums, virtual access to museums, have been really important tools in negotiating what you've just described. Um, those very negative effects of isolation and confinement. What we're seeing is a really strong endorsement of what a number of people have been aware of for a while. That is the potentially therapeutic value um, of culture and the therapeutic value of, of literature and translation, of world cinema, which, as I've said, have played this real role in ensuring that many of us have been able to maintain international connections, many of us have been able to continue to, to nurture forms of openness um, to, to the wider world. So, so I'd, I'd agree with you that translation has really had a major place already in this age of confinement. Um, and I, I'm wondering whether we're actually learning quite a lot now about this emerging area of, 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 um, of social prescribing and the way in which, um, in terms of preparation uh, for future episodes of this type, uh, if, if we are to face them in the future, which seems quite likely, that we need to be thinking um, much more collectively about the role of culture in our, in, in, in our facing up to the sorts of um, challenge, mental health and well-being challenges um, that, that you've talked about. One thing that really interests me, and I know this interests you too, um, is the way in which certain texts have come, have, have come to the fore. Um, so Camus' La Peste, um, Kafka's um, Die Verwandlung, um, Metamorphosis, um, translated texts which have circulated widely and have really allowed a number of people to reflect on and understand better and come to terms with um, our current predicament. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Um, I would like just uh, um, to uh, reflect a bit more on the word confinement, uh, because this specific word and the experience it refers to means, of course, something very different to each one of us. 
It happens to be a different concept across different generations, social groups, and countries. As you have rightly pointed out in your research blog hypothesis, and I quote, we need to be wary of the ethics of metaphorizing confinement. These and other modes of exile are nothing new, and I continue to quote, to those rendered phys physically immobile by disability, imprisonment, or other forms of confinement, reliant as a result on the imaginative possibilities of microspection in order to reenchant or transcend the everyday, end quote. So do you think that translation, at least in some of its forms, can offer support or care to the vulnerable populations in the current circumstances? Yeah, no, th th thank you for quoting from that um, that blog post. It was a piece like the, the British Comparative Literature Association um, invited me to write that piece on, on uh, on comparative literature in an age of confinement. And, and I was very interested in um, the place of travel writing as, as a supplementary um, form to, the, to those we've already discussed and the ways in which travel writing and indeed travel documentaries as well um, seem to be doing two things. They seem to be um, allowing various forms of vicarious travel, but they also seem to be encouraging people to, to rethink their relationship to their direct surroundings um, and to see how their direct surroundings can be a, a place of, of microspection, of looking at detail, but also of introspection and thinking about the ways in which um, we, we, we interrelate individually to, to, to those surroundings. Um, that said, as you've noted there, um, I've always been very wary of um, metaphorizing, uh, idealizing, romanticizing confinement. And that's why I, I very much um, welcome your question, because clearly the confinement that many of us are living through now um, is highly differential. Um, the confinement we're living through reveals massive inequalities um, within our own society, as well as between our own society and those um, elsewhere in the world. Also, I think it's important when we're talking about confinement to pick up on other forms of confinement and um, and immobility, um, like um, disability, like um, imprisonment, um, like confinement um, in uh, refugee camps, um, which clearly call into question um, any sense of of, of romanticising um, where we find ourselves. So, um, I was interested in that blog post in in what some people have called sort of claustrophiliac travel. So this this idea that although we are stuck in one place, um, we can still uh, explore the world um, from um, that place. My point was, um, look, let's be careful here. There's nothing new about that for a num for, for those who are um, rendered physically mobile by some of the various um, conditions um, that, that I've, I've described. Um, I've you know, another part of my work we haven't talked about. I've uh, I, I've worked a lot on on um, penal exoticism and and penal heritage, and I've always been worried about um, the exoticism of exoticization of imprisonment as well. In my work on um, pedestrian travel writing, I've always been aware that that sort of romanticism of pedestrianism idealizes and um, able-bodiedness in ways that aren't obviously um, apparent. So, so that's why I think we need to be wary about that sort of metaphorization um, of confinement. That said, and this brings it back to your question, I, I've already alluded, I think, to 
the practical potential of translation um, in um, protecting, bringing support to um, vulnerable populations. Um, for reasons um, we don't understand, the impact of COVID-19 on black and minority ethnic populations seems to be disproportionate. And as I've said already, that there is this pressing need to ensure equality of access to information, um, which depends on the highest standards of translation. That, that's a practical understanding of the way in which translation operates now. But to think more metaphorically, and this is where I think I'll, I'll conclude today, um, translation for me has always been a way at looking at the margins. It's always been a way of bringing marginalized voices, often silenced voices, um, to, to the foreground. So what I'd like to finish with is this idea of translation being a means of, of bridging understanding um, between groups. Translation as a way of articulating the fears, the frustrations of the sorts of groups who live in confinement um, on a regular basis um, that you've already talked about. And it's that sort of articulation of fears, frustrations, that leads us again to thinking about how translation can challenge the assumptions of the majority. Thank you very much, Charles. Now, this is uh, indeed uh, an illuminating, far-reaching and very important contribution because it shows, uh, in a sense, uh, the expansive nature to uh, recall your word or translation and yet at the same time the capacity of translation to reach those margins that would remain uh, uh, untouched otherwise. So thank you so much for this and thank you for suggesting ways as well uh, and underlines the ways in which as well the humanities can be part of the pandemic response by means of pioneering translational work like the work that you have been uh, conducting together with your colleagues uh, within the translating culture theme. And thank you also for explaining with clarity and lucidity how questions of contact and cultural diversity can overlap with questions of illness and confinement at the time when the distinction between the closer the distant has somehow given way to a fluid idea of space, interaction and relation. And in this respect, I would like to thank you also for completing and expanding the discussion I had with Nicola Gardini in the first episode of the series when we reflected on the new language of COVID-19. Today with you, we had an opportunity to reflect instead on the new spaces carved by COVID and on new conce concepts of relationship that uh, this post-pandemic world is asking us to accommodate in our own lives. So finally, as always, I also would like to thank each one of you for watching this video, which we hope will help us find a safe or at least safer zone of proximity, cross-cultural encounter and translation. Thank you very much indeed. Marta, thank you for the opportunity to discuss all these, these key issues and I, I wish you well um, for the continuation of the project. Thank you very much.